you would turn with me together to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be there in just a few minutes, actually at the very end of Genesis 1. In J.R.R. Tolkien's classic book, The Return of the King, which is the climactic ending to the series, The Lord of the Rings, if you know the story, King Aragorn is finally victorious in battle and he's coming to a city And the people sing a song in rejoicing. The song goes like this. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the Tower of Guard, for your watch hath not been in vain. And the black gate is broken, and your king has passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. And then the story continues of the return of the king. And the city was made ready for the coming of the king. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands. And a light was about him. Behold the king! And in that moment, all the trumpets were blown and amid the music of harp and viol and of flute and the singing of clear voices, the king passed through the flower-laden streets and came to the citadel and entered in. Tolkien's timeless story of the struggle between good and evil is personified in the central character, the once exiled and now returning king And there are pages and pages devoted to the majesty of the king taking his rightful place. For millennia on earth, kings and kingdoms have risen and they've failed. They failed because of sin. They failed because of the corruption that total power ultimately brings at one level or another. And and yet, despite all of those failures, failure of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, Those who seek righteousness and goodness in the world, those who worship the true God of the Bible, those who worship Christ, we yearn for a good and faithful king. We know instinctively, even in the United States, that a democracy is only because there is no one man righteous enough to rule perfectly. The book of Proverbs gives many blessings of a righteous king. Proverbs 16, 15, In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the late rain. Proverbs 20, verse 8, A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Proverbs 28, 20, 28, rather, Loving kindness and truth will guard the king, and he upholds his throne by loving kindness. We yearn for a king, we long for a king. This morning, we'd like to begin our voyage together in looking at the true king and his millennial reign, the reign of Jesus Christ on earth, the literal 1,000-year time period that will become, come between this age of the church and the, the final state of the new heavens and new earth. This era is most commonly called by theologians the millennium, and so we're simply calling this series Millennium. For me personally, this subject has gripped me for decades, going all the way back to my childhood. Something I've always been interested in and and fascinated by. Shortly after college, I read a book by Dr. John Walvoord, 
former chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, is a simple book called Major Bible Prophecies. It wasn't sensational. It wasn't overly dramatic. He's a fairly dry writer. It was simply a logical, straightforward explanation of what Scripture says about 37 different prophetic events. And really, for the first time for me, the Bible as a whole book made sense as one story, a single story. It's all woven together. The last six chapters of Dr. Walbert's book dealt with the second coming of Christ and everything that happens after that, and I couldn't put it down. In the years since then, my own interest hasn't waned. I've read hundreds of articles and books on end times and prophecy. I've preached hundreds of sermons on Bible prophecy. And in all of that, I have found that taking a simple, straightforward hermeneutics of of the Bible being believed at face value has always rendered consistent results. And the results are a story that remains the same from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. It is the same story. It never changes, doesn't get altered, doesn't get adjusted. God doesn't have to go to plan B. It's always been plan A, and that is the kingdom of God on earth. And in these years, I have to say for me personally, I've found the greatest comfort in this life by focusing my thoughts on the next. And that's part of the purpose of Bible prophecy. I'm gripped by Bible prophecy. I'm gripped by the astounding fact that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will literally be reigning on a throne at a latitude of 31.771959 and a longitude of 35.217018, the city of Jerusalem in the nation of Israel. We know the spot He will be in. As a matter of fact, when comparing what we know about the millennial reign of Christ with what we know about the new heavens and new earth, the final state, we have much more information about the millennium than we do about the final state. Now, to be clear, this series is not for the purpose of making a giant theological statement, but we will be making a giant theological statement. The purpose, though, is to simply show what the Bible says and that the topic of the coming kingdom of Christ on earth after the Great Tribulation is profoundly present in Scripture. It's not a footnote. It's not some one or two obscure passages that we've had to reinterpret to fit a theological viewpoint. It's everywhere. And I can say with certainty that if, after listening to this entire series, a person still doesn't believe in the literal kingdom of Christ on earth and a literal restoration of Israel as the consummation of promises that God has made repeated times in Scripture, if after all this a person still doesn't believe in the kingdom of Christ on earth, it's because he doesn't want to. That's the only reason left. And he's more inclined to believe tradition and to believe theologians over the clear intention of the word of God. Now the rest of our time today is basically a lot of lists. You've heard the analogy of trying to eat the proverbial elephant one bite at a time. This is not like that. This is like trying to eat all the elephants that have ever lived while the ones that are still alive are chasing you. So this is, this is massive. And so just to scratch the surface, I'm going to ask and answer nine questions this morning to get our thinking going. Nine questions that some of them will take a long time on, some will be brief. The first question, why do we use the term millennium? And in case you're wondering, two L's, two N's, M's on the end. And you'll get most of it right if you spell it that way. The word millennium refers to the time period of 1,000 years. Millennium is not a word found in the Bible necessarily. 
but its Greek counterpart is seen in Revelation 20 in six different places. Kilia ete means thousand years. 20, Revelation 20 verse 2, Satan is to be bound for a thousand years. Verse 3, until the thousand years were finished. Verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Verse 6, the saints will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And verse 7, when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison. How long is the millennium? A thousand years. Because of this six-fold emphasis on the time period of 1,000 years of the reign of Christ, this belief in past times, not so much now, but has been called chiliasm, after the Greek word kilia. Uh, if you're spelling chiliasm, it's C-H-I-L-I-A-S-M, like chili with asm after it. But now it's more popular, sim- popularly simply called millennialism because of our understanding of the word thousand. Now, in church history, there have been three major views or systems for understanding millennialism. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But I have to tell you this. We're not going to count the belief system called preterism. Preterism is the belief that all prophecy has already come to pass. Christ has returned invisibly. Satan and Antichrist have already been thrown into the lake of fire. The resurrection of the dead has already happened. The kingdom of God has already fully arrived as of 70 A.D., This is a heretical view. It takes a few statements, about five, in the Gospels and twists them while completely ignoring the entire timeline of both the New Testament letters and the theology of the early church and all of the Old Testament. The preterist says that the way the earth is now is the way it will be forever and ever. So we're not going to count that. We're not going to spend time, waste time on that. We use the term millennium. And some have said, well, that name is in in the Bible. Well, then let's give you some other options. Names for the millennium that are in the Bible, and we'll just do the New Testament. Here's seven of them. In Matthew 6.10, it's called the kingdom of heaven. And you say, well, that's, that's not on the earth. Jesus said to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke 19.11, Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. The millennium is the kingdom of heaven. It is the kingdom of God. Revelation 11.15 A big one. The kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. The kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus calls this kingdom the regeneration. The regeneration. The the time when when the earth is renewed. Acts 3, 19. The Apostle Peter calls it the times of refreshing. And just two verses later in Acts 3, 21. The period of restoration. In Hebrews 2, 9. It's called the world to come. So you have the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, the regeneration, the times of refreshing, the period of restoration, the world to come. So if you don't like millennium, there's seven other examples you can use. There's a second question. What are the basic systems for understanding the millennium? What are the basic systems for understanding the millennium? The three major views or systems, and we'll examine these in much greater detail in later messages, but the, the first one we'll highlight would be called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is a belief that gained prominence with the teaching of Daniel Whidbey in the late 1600s and early 1700s. Post-millennialism says that the second coming of Christ will happen after a thousand years of peace and prosperity and righteousness. That the church will bring about the full reformation of the world 
until Christ will reign spiritually through the church for a thousand years or after the thousand years. Premillennialism, premillennialists see this system as the historic position going back to the apostles and they would argue going all the way back to the Old Testament. This is based on a face value literal interpretation of scripture. All the unconditional promises made to Abraham and to Jacob will have, or to David rather, will have an ultimate literal fulfillment that can be seen and can be cataloged. Premillennialism says that at the close of this age, Christ will return to take her bride, the church, by meeting her in the air during the rapture and the resurrection event. This will bring on the seven-year tribulation after which Christ and the glorified saints from heaven will return to earth to establish Messiah's kingdom for a thousand years. And during this time, all of God's promises to Israel will find their ultimate fulfillment. That's premillennialism, meaning that Christ returns before the millennium. And then there's the belief of amillennialism. This is currently probably the most popular in evangelicalism. Amillennialism basically means no millennium. That the next event to happen concerning end times is the return of Christ immediately followed by all judgments and the final state. That everything, there's no timeline. It's when Christ returns, everything happens at once. This rejects the idea that there are two resurrections, one before the millennium and one after, as Revelation 20 teaches. Amillennialism is central to Roman Catholic belief. It is a central belief of the Roman Catholic Church, which is, which is important for them because they teach that the church is the kingdom of Christ that's reigning now. So if you're not part of the Catholic Church, you're not part of the kingdom. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, is thought by many to be really the originator of amillennial theology. He taught that the millennium is to be envisioned spiritually as the church reigning on earth. And so, so the millennium, technically speaking, is happening now, but they are called amillennialists because there's no sense of, of kingdom really that we can see. They would continue to teach that Satan was bound during the ministry of Christ, that Satan is not active on the earth in this day, that the first resurrection spoken of in Revelation 20 is symbolic of the regeneration of the new believer in Christ. The second resurrection in Revelation 20 is the literal bodily resurrection of saints. So you go from symbolic to literal in a couple of verses. Now here's a little interesting fact. Augustine believed that the church was the kingdom, that this is a spiritual kingdom. But he did believe that the thousand years was a literal number of 1,000 years. So a thousand years after Christ uh, ascended into heaven... 1,100 years after Christ ascended into heaven, 1,200 years after Christ ascended into heaven, the doctrine was altered that now the 1,000 years is symbolic of a really long time. I'm going to show you from hundreds of Scripture passages that the premillennial view is the only view that doesn't involve making literal things symbolic. It's the only view that's consistent with what's called a, a prima facie, meaning a, a first impression reading of the book of Revelation, that, that a person just reading the book of Revelation will come to a premillennial conclusion. And the premillennial view is the only view which doesn't involve reinterpreting Old Testament passages to fit a theological system that I made up. And most importantly, the premillennial view is the only view which places Christ bodily and physically on the earth, reigning visibly to the whole world. 
So where do we get this? Why do we even talk about this? So this is our third question. What's the foundation? What is the foundation? Where did the idea of a kingdom of God on earth come from? And this is what brings us to Genesis 1. The very last verse, Genesis 1.31, the foundation is that the idea of a kingdom of God on earth came from the dawn of creation itself. Genesis 1.31, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The statement that these things were good, this is a statement of purpose. This isn't just an evaluation. The the, the statement that these things were good doesn't just mean that they were aesthetically pleasing, that they were pretty, that they were nice, that they smelled good, whatever. It means that they are the basis upon which God will build His eternal plan, His eternal divine purposes. Creation sets us up for what I've called in the past the central directive of Scripture, the the central command that we have in all of Scripture. Look with me a few verses earlier in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Look at verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God makes mankind in his image with gender distinctions The idea that we're created in the image of God is a huge part of the central directive. There's a lot of angles to think about the image of God. Some emphasize relational similarities, that we are relational like God is. Others emphasize moral similarities, that we are moral beings like God is. Others emphasize functional similarities. But there's a definite nuance that ought to be noted here. There's very good evidence that the phrase in our image and the phrase after our likeness, we should translate these as our image and the LSB does translate according to our likeness. Now what's the difference between in our image and as our image? Hang with me here. Mankind is not just made in the image of God, he is the image of God. What does that mean? It means he speaks not just of what mankind is, but what he is to be, what he is to do, that he's a representative, which implies action, which implies function. Here's an illustration that will make this easy to understand. When a vice president makes an appearance, he's appearing on behalf of and essentially as the living representative of the president. He doesn't come in the image of the president. He comes as the president. He is the representative And so given the fact that mankind is as the image of God, as the representative of God on earth, now we can grasp the entire point of creation, the entire point of the Bible, the central directive, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion. That's a royal word. Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky. Another mandate follows. Verse 28 God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. The first time in verse 26, we see have dominion. It's a Hebrew verb form that expresses a wish or a decree. May they have dominion. But the second time, It's an imperative. It's a command. Subdue in verse 28 is a command. That's what we're called to do. 
In other words, mankind is to govern. We are to lead in a way which demonstrates mankind's lordship and dominion and subjugation over all creation as the appointed representative of God. And so God has given a central directive that mankind will have dominion over his, as his representative on earth. But in God's master plan to glorify all aspects of his character, including his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, and yes, his wrath and his righteous judgment, God allowed sin to enter into the creation in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, God cursed Satan, God cursed the woman, God cursed the man, and now we have death, we have the bearing of sinful children, but we also have a promise. Look with me at Genesis three fifteen. We have a promise. God, ironically, is speaking to the serpent, to Satan. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That through a coming Savior, sin and Satan and death would be crushed. And this coming Savior would be the perfect man. Fully God, fully man, who will someday be the perfect representative of God on earth while we, as Revelation 20 and Revelation 22 says, reign with him. What does that do? That fulfills the original plan going all the way back to Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. God's original plan for planet Earth. And so the millennium is necessary to get us back to that original plan. And so it's to our benefit to study all we can about what God says about the return and restoration to that plan. Here's a fourth question, and we'll spend some time on this. What are the major elements of the millennium? What are the major elements of the millennium? I'm going to tell you this just in case Christ raptures us before we finish the series and you're on the way up going, oh no, what happens next? Well, you'll know unless he comes back in the next 40 minutes or so. Now, I will say this to the brother or sister who is amillennial, who believes we're either in the kingdom or there is no literal reign of Christ on earth. I would gently say that if you believe that the millennium is mentioned only in Revelation 20, which is in countless amillennial uh, materials, If you believe that, I would assert that you didn't come to that conclusion by reading the Bible. You came to that conclusion because somebody told you that. In his Theology of Premillennialism, Dr. Charles Ryrie goes through every major argument for a literal millennium and he waits 120 pages to mention Revelation 20. And then he writes, quote, Let the amillennialist note carefully that this is the first mention in the entire book of Revelation 20, which has been called the keystone of premillennialism. Revelation 20 simply gives the duration of that period. Now we'll deal with this in more detail in subsequent messages, but many millennial passages in the Old Testament in particular make it clear that, the, that in the millennium there are qualities which are not present in this current age, such as, the biggest one, Messiah reigning on the earth. But also it's clear that in the final state, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, there are qualities which will, will not be present or which uh, will be present that we don't have in the millennium. 
we don't have here. In other words, when you compare present state, final state, there are descriptions of the millennium that don't fit either one. In the final state, you have no sin. In the millennium, you have the subdued presence of sin in the world. Why? Because of survivors of the Great Tribulation beginning to have children. Now, that evidence alone weighs heavily in favor of an age between this age and the final state. And I tell you that now because some of the elements of the millennium only make sense when understood in the proper context of a world in which sin does exist, but it's subjugated and it's subdued. And so just a a very broad and general overview, here are six elements of the millennium. We could make many more categories, but these generally cover, I think, the most important Six elements of the millennium. The first element, it's an earthly kingdom. It's an earthly kingdom. And we have to be clear about this. We have to emphasize this because the error of a purely spiritual or invisible kingdom is prevalent in the church today. It is the major view of the kingdom. We are in the minority. The kingdom is earthly. Isaiah 11.9, They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Zechariah 14.9, And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. The Bible makes certain that we don't default to just a purely spiritualized version of the kingdom. Just as one example, the Bible describes physical features of the earth that will actually be changed right before the millennium. Zechariah 14.4, the Mount of Olives will be split in two. Zechariah 14.8, Ezekiel 47.1, and Joel 3.18 all say that a river will flow from Jerusalem. And just in case someone wants to spiritualize that, Zechariah 14.8 gives the detail that the river will flow in two directions. One river to the east, the other part of the river will flow to the west. One river, two directions. And you might say, aha, how can the river go in two directions? There's only one way a river can go in two directions. When the point it's coming from is on the top of the highest mountain in the world. Well, that can't be. Jerusalem isn't the highest mountain in the world. Micah 4.1 says that Jerusalem will be the highest mountain in the world. A river going two directions makes perfect sense. There's a second element to the glorious restoration. The The second element, rather, is the glorious restoration of Israel. The glorious restoration of Israel. This is based on God being faithful to his covenants with Abraham and David, his covenants concerning the new covenant in Christ. This is one of the chief reasons for a millennium in the first place, to be a time when our covenant-keeping God, our promise-keeping God, fulfills in total completion all his promises to his chosen nation. And they'll fulfill finally the function that they were originally designed for, going all the way back to Exodus 19, that there are to be a kingdom of priests that show God's glory to the whole world, they'll finally fulfill that. Zechariah 8.23 says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, In those days, ten men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. We have endless information on the millennium, except the answer to one key question about the glorious restoration of Israel. When? When? Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. The apostles are gathered around him, uh, sensing that 
there they have one final shot to ask questions. And what's the last question they chose to ask him? Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, meaning over and over again, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know. Not for me to know. But he didn't deny it. The kingdom was coming. There's a third element. The visible reign of Christ. The visible reign of Christ. The return of Christ will see him fulfilling the covenants. In Romans 11, Paul cites Isaiah 59 to show that the return of Christ brings about the restoration of Israel. The two go together. The fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. Romans 11, beginning in verse 26, Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, and now he cites Isaiah 59, The deliverer will come from Zion, that is Jerusalem. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that is Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Here it is, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And it's ironic to me that the amillennialist tries to use Romans 11 as a proof against the millennium. Jeremiah 23 gives what is maybe the most direct assertion of the coming reign of Christ on earth. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, that is Christ, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they will no longer say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But now they'll say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up and brought back the seed of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where I had banished them, then they will live on their own soil. That's a big chunk of theology to try to deny a second coming of Christ reigning over Israel in an actual land. There's a fourth element of the coming kingdom, a righteous government. A righteous government. Can I hear an amen for that one? That's the one we look forward to. A supreme governing authority in the millennium is a divine monarchy. Jesus Christ the King. What will His government be like? Isaiah 11, 2-5 says it'll be with the perfect wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, we just read, said it'll be in equity and justice. Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14 all say that sin will be punished perfectly every time. Isaiah 24, 23 says that the reign of Messiah will be filled with glory. Isaiah 2, verse 3 says that Christ will reign from His capital in Jerusalem. Psalm 72, 11, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Micah 4, 2, Zechariah 8, 22 state that all the nations of the world will be subject to the Messiah King. They'll bow down to Him in submission. All the nations bowing down. Isaiah 2, verse 4 says that weapons will no longer be necessary Nations won't go to war with each other. Weapons are necessary now because we live in the sinful world with wicked men, but not in the coming kingdom. In 2 Timothy 2.12 and Revelation 5.10, Revelation 20, verse 6, all state that the church age saints, that's us, 
We will reign with Christ, rightfully sharing the derived authority that comes from the king. You want to know what the government of the king is going to be like? Look around. You're it. You are it. Glorified, perfected, resurrected saints ruling in perfect righteousness under the auspices of a perfect king. There's a fifth element. This will be a worship-centered kingdom. A worship-centered kingdom. And I just want to hit some highlights of this. As I mentioned earlier, it's important to note that there will be unbelievers in the kingdom. Descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. Isaiah 65, 20 says, No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fulfill his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So Isaiah indicates here that infant mortality is gone, doesn't happen anymore. Those who get saved, uh, as those descended from the survivors of the Great Tribulation, they'll live very, very long lives, like the days before Noah, hundreds and hundreds of years, and potentially, I can't prove this from Scripture, they will receive new bodies at the end of the, of the millennium. But the unsaved are seen to be cursed Oh, he died as a youth. He was only a hundred. Now, I mention all of that under the worship-filled, worship-centered kingdom because what that tells us is that the gospel will continue to be proclaimed. The gospel will continue to go forth and many will be saved. Zechariah 13, 1 says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And here's the purpose for sin and for impurity, that there's a fountain of life. Salvation continues to be offered. And I've tried to make this case before and we'll make this case more at a later time. But in the Old Testament, in the early days, God chose a few. He chose an Abraham and an Isaac and a Jacob. And then, and then there's a small nation. And then we move on to the church age where many will be saved. The great tribulation Jesus speaks of that as the time when every nation will hear the gospel. So there's been this increase in the numbers that come to faith in Christ. It stands to reason that that will continue. You remember those little math exercises where you're supposed to fill in the blank when it said two, four, six, and you're supposed to fill in the blank? If we fill in the blank, more people will be saved during the millennium than in any other time in history. The gospel going forth, and and is it any wonder Jesus is on the earth? Millions and millions of glorified saints on the earth proclaiming the gospel, ruling with perfection. Zechariah 14, 16 and 17 indicates that certain feasts and festivals will be reinstated. The, the feast of booths will now be required for all the nations. Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes a glorious new temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, many take this temple allegorically or metaphorically as not being a, a literal temple, but the details are so precise that you could draw blueprints for the temple from the description, and some have done it. And so it becomes an exercise really in ridiculing the Word of God to try to make every description of the temple features just somehow symbolic. That same section of Ezekiel 40 through 48 clearly describes sacrifices that are going to be made again. I don't want to open that theological can of worms quite yet, but let me just give you four things to think about on those coming sacrifices. First one, they do not, they cannot replace the sacrifice of Christ. Nothing to do with that. It never adds to, doesn't replace the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
Second thing to think about on that, this is not related to salvation. The sacrifices are not related to salvation. They're related to purity before you worship in the temple. They're not for salvation. They're for purity purposes. Third little note, these sacrifices are focused on the restored nation of Israel. They're focused on Israel that they're now, for the first time in all of history, obeying the Lord perfectly and now enjoying all of the the national benefits that they were always meant to have. And this is the biggest misunderstanding. I'll tell you this up front. A close examination of the sacrifices will show that they are not a return to the law of Moses. This is the biggest argument against them, that we we can't return to the law of Moses because the law has been fulfilled. They are not a return to the law of Moses. We'll make a very careful uh, description that this is different. It is the beginning of something we find in Ezekiel 40 through 48, the law of God in the millennium. He's had a law in the time of Moses. He had a law in the time of the church, the law of Christ. He will have a law in the millennium. And it's revealed in Ezekiel 40 and following. By the way, for those who deny that sacrifices will restart in the millennium, no one disputes that during the great tribulation, the time before the millennium, sacrifices will restart. They can't deny it because Daniel 9.27 says the sacrifices will restart. But those sacrifices will be under the rule of Antichrist, a false, unspiritual attempt by a still apostate Israel trying to go back to the old days. Why will the Jews start sacrificing again? Because they think that Messiah has returned. And they all believe that sacrifices will begin again. And so when sacrifices are made legitimately under the reign of the true Messiah, that's exactly what Jews have always expected. And of course, the glorified and resurrected saints of the church age and the the resurrected Saints of the Old Testament will be worshiping perfectly as we reign alongside the King. First Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture and resurrection of the church age saints who were perfected in the millennium. Daniel 12 indicates the Old Testament age saints will be resurrected at the end of the great tribulation and before the millennium and all of us together being glorified worshipers. Glorified worshipers and And in that time, when you're worshiping, if your cell phone goes off, it'll be blasted to smithereens, maybe. (laughs) Perfect worship, perfect focus, perfect thoughts of God, perfect understanding, singing that is glorious. What a time it'll be. What about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, though? not going to be dogmatic about this, but it seems fairly likely that baptism in the Lord's table will end at the millennium. These are symbols, and when the reality of Christ is present, the symbol is no longer necessary. There are some hints that the millennial kingdom will conclude baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, I'm not going to go to the stake for this, but for baptism, our hint is the Great Commission. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to make disciples and baptize them, He said that he would be with the church, quote, even to the end of the age, meaning the end of the church age, potentially indicating baptism ending with the church age as well. That that one's iffy. What seems to be clearer is the end of the Lord's Supper, of the remembrance of the death of Christ, replaced by the marriage supper of the Lamb to whatever extent that continues on. And and you might say, why? I don't want the Lord's Supper to end. It's, It's a precious symbol to me. 
you know what you know what continuing the Lord's Supper would be like? It'd be, it's like going out on a date with your wife and you're staring at the picture of her. Well, she's right there. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord. What's the next phrase? Until he comes. Oh, and what a spiritually rich life we'll have as glorified saints of God. Perfect leading by the Holy Spirit at all times. Perfect wisdom. A world in which Satan and his demons have been bound and they have zero influence. Revelation 20. A world in which our Savior and our King is visible and available. I I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that I can go see Jesus whenever I want to. Here's a sixth element to the millennium. We'll call this one a dramatic ending. A dramatic ending. At the end of the millennium, Satan will be released briefly. He will incite a revolt by unsaved, unglorified people. Revelation 27 through 10. And this is going to prove a major theological point. It's going to prove that even in the incredible environment of a world ruled by Messiah, a world ruled by his glorified saints, it won't change the inner depravity of the unsaved. That salvation must be from the inside out and cannot go from the outside in. Satan and his forces will be defeated in one glorious battle. Satan will be sent to the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 10. The Son of God will have successfully, spiritually purified the world once and for all. And at that moment, at that very moment, 1 Corinthians 15 24 says, Then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, to his God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Then the current creation will be melted down. All the unsaved dead of all the ages will appear before Christ, the judge at the great white throne judgment. And then, after all who have rejected God for all time are sent to the lake of fire, God will remake a totally purified and refined new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to inaugurate the final state where now there is no sin, there are no sinners, and all of God's promises to Israel, to Abraham, to David have been fulfilled by the reign of Christ on earth. All covenants done and fulfilled. Let's move on to a fifth question. And I want that the rest of our time is going to be fairly applicational. What are the spiritual benefits of this study? What are the spiritual benefits? I'll give you five of them. They'll help you view and study Scripture properly. They'll help you view and study Scripture properly. This is a a controversial topic. It's a controversial topic. I told a friend of mine we were starting this, this, uh, this topic, and he's a pastor in a church that has not been doctrinally really purified as of yet. And he was like, well, good luck with that. I hope that goes well. It's a controversial topic. There's no, there's no denying it. We'll spend significant time exploring how you study this issue and how you do not. Because I want you to see the foundation for it. So it'll help you how to view and study Scripture properly. The second benefit is you'll have a heightened eagerness for the return of Christ. You'll have a heightened eagerness for the return of Christ. Who is the greatest premillennialist of all time? It's the Apostle John. Because he was given the vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ and it led him to the final prayer of the Bible, Come Lord Jesus. 
Here's the third benefit. You'll have a greater understanding of the redemptive plan of God. A greater understanding of the redemptive plan of God. What this will teach you is that you are not the ultimate end of God's redemptive plan. You are part of it, but you're not the ultimate end. Redemptive history goes from creation to consummation, and you are blessed to be a part. It's a fourth benefit. You'll have an appreciation for the necessity of the millennium. You'll have an appreciation for the necessity of the millennium. That this isn't just some weird fictional kingdom that dispensationalists made up that we all read the Lord of the Rings and said, well, let's make up something like that. I'm going to show you why the millennium is a mandatory theological element to the redemptive plan of God. And this will include, by the way, an appreciation for God's plan for Israel and God's plan for all the nations. There's a fifth benefit you'll receive. A sense of anticipation of what you have to look forward to. You'll have a sense of anticipation. How much more will you pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven when you understand what that kingdom on earth is going to be like? By the way, a little side note, it'll also translate into eliminating any fear of death. If you have even a little part of you that's afraid of dying right now, this will kill it. This will be done. No pun intended. Here's a sixth question. What can you expect in this series? What can you expect in this series? This is somewhat of a grand experiment for me. So let me tell you what you can expect. First, you can expect a leisurely walk and not a fast run. We're going to take a leisurely walk through this. I have no intention of hurrying through this for the sake of time. I feel in some sense I've been preparing for this my whole life. We're always in a hurry to get somewhere. We're always in a hurry to be entertained. We're not going to be in a hurry here. It's my intention for us to savor this together. I want you to be so saturated in what the Bible says about the coming reign of Christ on earth that your spiritual eyes are always looking upward. That you're always looking forward, looking ahead. That's the greatest hope we have in this life. You can also expect a fair amount of overlap. Fair amount of overlap. I always fall back on... On 2 Peter 1, where Peter says, I tell you these things by way of reminder. That's a preacher's favorite verse when he wants to repeat himself. It'll be impossible not to overlap because the Bible is dripping with the coming kingdom of Christ. At first, I really tried to set up this series where there wouldn't be any overlap, and I I surrendered. I waved the white flag after an hour. There's no way to do it. I'll be repeating myself. We will be going to many Bible passages frequently, some as many as a couple of dozen times. But this is the eternal word of God and we'll see new truths, new nuances drawn out every time. We'll use, with this overlap, we'll be using both systematic theology and biblical theology. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that, Steve? Systematic theology is what the whole Bible says on a particular topic. Biblical theology is what a specific passage says on a bunch of topics. And we'll use both of them. That will create some overlap. So it'll be a little bit like the proverbial science fiction problem with time travel. What's the, ti- the problem with time travel? Well, what happens if you run into yourself? Well, we're going to run into ourselves on occasion as we go back to texts over and over again. But we'll glory in reviewing from a slightly different vantage point. You can expect a necessary saturation in Israel. We're going to saturate ourselves in Israelology, because Israel is a major player in the coming kingdom. They're the center of the coming kingdom. You can't talk about the millennium without talking about Israel. It is literally impossible. 
The millennium and Israel are basically the same discussion because one is dependent on the other. And for anyone who would say that studying Israel doesn't apply to me today in 2023, I would simply point out that the Bible names Israel by name 2,584 times. And that doesn't include all of God's nicknames for Israel like Ephraim, descendants of Abraham, the children of Jacob, and so forth. And I would point out once again that the final book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, essentially reads like an Old Testament action book about Israel. So we'll be saturated in that doctrine. And finally, you can expect a pyramid-like structure. A pyramid-like structure. Doing this study is like building a massive pyramid. We have to have lots of massive foundation stones. We need to take time to, to cut them carefully, to fit them carefully, and slowly we'll build our way to the top where then we'll have a, a glorious view. But it's only possible if you take time to build the foundation adequately. But I, I believe with all of my heart that by the time we've done a thorough explanation of all the foundational material, the actual millennium itself will feel normal, it'll feel natural, it'll feel familiar to you. Or if I could put it this way, when we're at the top of that pyramid looking around and seeing what we see, you'll say, oh, that's my home. It'll be that familiar. It'll be home. Here's the seventh question. What are the challenges before us? What are the challenges before us? What are the challenges to the preacher and to the listener? The challenges to all of us here is the, the need for intentional impact. The need for intentional impact. I'm committed to being as applicational as possible. If this study doesn't impact your heart at a deep and profound level, it will have been a failure and there's no point to it. My challenge as the preacher is to not turn this project simply into a series of lectures. It ought to be always a study and that, that we apply to our minds, to our hearts, to our lives. But I'm very confident of one thing. And I wouldn't be asking you to take this voyage together if I didn't believe this one thing. I submit to you that you will never be the same after this series. You'll never be the same. Your mind will have changed. Your affections will have changed. Your focus will change. Another challenge, the unusual nature of this series. I'm terrified to tell you how many sermons I'm going to preach. I've mentioned it here and there. So I won't tell you now, but you can see in your bulletin that there is the first three series. Basically, what we're doing is a, a long series of mini-series to get us to the millennium. And my challenge is convincing you that this is worth the walk together. This topic is beyond description in its scope, in its breadth. Like I said, it's not like eating an elephant one bite at a time. It's like eating all the elephants that have ever lived while the ones that are still alive are chasing you. So this is somewhat of an experiment for me. If by the final message, the only three people listening have the last name Swartz, <laughs> then it will have been a failure. But I believe this topic is among the most gripping in all the Bible. And it's worth taking our time on. It's worth taking a once-in-a-lifetime deep dive into the pages of Scripture. And let me give you one more challenge. That is the impossibility of being thorough. The impossibility of being thorough is with as much detail as we're going to cover, there's still no way to be exhaustive. The, the sheer volume of material in the Bible on the millennial kingdom, it's so overwhelming, it would be one man's life work just to catalog it, much less to study all of it. Every book in the Old Testament, except for Jonah, 
has direct bearing on the millennial kingdom. Every one of them. And in Jonah, what is Jonah about? God's grace to Gentiles. What is a major theme of the millennium? God's grace to the Gentiles. Those are the challenges before us. I, I am placing my trust in the Lord to help us. I'm placing my trust in you as a church body that you are ready for us to take this voyage together, which brings us to an eighth question. How can you get ready? How can you get ready? Next week, we'll continue introducing Millennium on Sunday morning. Then we're going to move to Sunday evening. Let me give you four ways to get ready. First of all, be here in person, if at all possible. Be here in person, if at all possible. In all likelihood, you will never have this opportunity in your lifetime again. Make this a part of your life for the foreseeable future. You'll always be able to look back and be a part of this time that I'm praying will be historic in our church's history together. And so I urge you to make this part of your time. Utilize the shepherding that happens that's so much more effective when we're together. Second way you can get ready. Get a big notebook or get a stack of notebooks or clear some memory on your iPad or a recording device, whatever you use. The point of taking notes is to be able to review them in the day or two following the Lord's day as part of your times with the Lord. And that, that stitches these truths deeply into your life. So get ready to take some notes if that's what helps you. It's the third way you can get ready. Pray for me and pray for the church. Pray for me and for the church. Pray that souls would be saved here in the, this series Pray for the gospel to be highlighted in new ways as we focus on what is coming, the things yet to come. And then the fourth way to get ready, and you heard this already during our, our announcements, utilize the Welcome Center. We're planning on having, as you see in your bulletin today, basic outlines of where we are in the whole series. And this isn't just for you. This is for when you bring a guest and we're on message about number 75. You can show them in context kind of where we are. It might be helpful there. Let me give you one more question to answer. What is coming down the road? What is coming down the road? Lord willing, what's coming down the road is a set of mini-series to address specific aspects of the millennium. We're going to start at the bottom of this pyramid and build our way slowly to the top. We've begun this morning our first series, simply called Introducing the Millennium. We'll spend four more messages just getting our feet wet. We're kind of introducing the introduction. That's kind of what we're doing today. Then we're going to do a number of mini-series that build this this first level of the the pyramid, the first couple levels. We're going to do a series called Alternate Views of the Millennium to really answer every question you have about alternative viewpoints so that you're armed and you're prepared with answers as well. We'll do a series called Premillennial Foundations. We're going to look at the legacy of premillennialism and the methods of premillennialism. How do we arrive at the conclusions that we're making? We're going to do a series on the covenants, why certain covenants are key to understanding the millennium. And just for fun, we're going to do one message on David and Goliath and why you must understand David and Goliath to understand the millennium and vice versa. We're going to do a series on the Old Testament witnesses to the millennium, what entire books or major passages in the Old Testament say about the millennium. We're going to do a series on the New Testament witnesses to the millennium, what entire books or major passages in the New Testament say. We'll do a series called God's Beloved Israel. This is an introductory series on the importance of Israel in the consummation of the plan of God. We'll do another series called Invincible Israel. We're going to prove in multiple messages that Israel is indestructible in the plan of God. We'll do a series called Israel's Future Glory. We'll even look at Jewish tradition concerning the coming restoration. 
What do unbelieving Jews believe? And you'll find out that in, in many cases they get it right. We'll look at Israel's future glory as seen in the Torah, the writings, and the prophets to use the Jewish divisions of the Old Testament. We'll explore Israel's future glory in major Old Testament and New Testament passages. We're still on the foundation. We'll look at the promised land. We'll look at Israel as the capital nation and the fulfillment of God's land promises. I'll show you that Israel is meant to be the new Garden of Eden in the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, now we're near the top of the pyramid. Now we're going to start with what happens next in redemptive history. We're going to do a series on the rapture of the church and why that is theologically imperative for you to believe this. We're going to do a series on the tribulation and the great tribulation, the seven years between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. We're going to do a series on the second coming of Christ, 11 messages on the second coming that's worthy of our attention We'll do a series on the government of King Jesus. We'll do a series on kingdom living. What is life going to be like in the millennium? Short answer, better. Longer answer takes a lot more time. We'll do a series on kingdom worship. What is our general spiritual life going to be like? What's the purpose of the millennial temple, the glorious temple described in Ezekiel 40 through 48? And we'll do five messages on the sacrifices of the millennium and why they're so vital to the worship of Christ on earth for Israel in particular. Then we'll do a series we'll call Closing the Millennium, the the final rebellion and judgment, the theological purposes behind God releasing Satan one last time and allowing this final rebellion. And then we'll close this with a short series we'll just call The New Earth. Three messages to look at the success of the millennium, the coming new earth, and New Jerusalem. So we're going to take a voyage together. It's on a scale that probably none of us have ever experienced. And so I'm going to borrow the words of that great theologian, President John F. Kennedy. He gave a speech on May 25th, 1961, entitled, The Decision to Go to the Moon. And he said, But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. Or, to put it in more divine terms, In the ancient words of David in Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And my prayer is that the Lord would bless our efforts to grasp the glory of the King of glory coming in. Let's do this together. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time, Lord, just to begin to scratch the surface of this ever-present theme in the Bible how eager we are for the return of Christ, how eager we are for any given Lord's day to be the last one on this earth before we are raptured and before we are made ready to return to an earth ruled by our Savior. I pray for all of our hearts, Lord, that you would prepare us to dive deeply into the Scriptures, to think lofty thoughts, to be theological believers that act on their theology and live lives that are are worthy of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage those who are in pain and in difficulty and in grief and in sorrow. Encourage them, Lord, with thoughts of the coming kingdom 
the glories that are to come. And as we paint a clearer and clearer picture of that kingdom, I pray that the encouragement in our hearts only grows, that we might live worthy this day in, in future, uh, looking forward to the future day, Lord, when Christ will return. Let us be those that anticipate his return, that look eagerly to the skies for our Savior. And we pray in his name, amen.